Welcome everybody back to our series of podcasts, our first series of podcasts, 10 episodes, Our Story, Becoming the Big Cat People. And in this episode, episode 9, it's called Big Cat Diary. Now I'm sure a lot of you are going to be thinking, oh gosh, that's that extraordinary television series that ran from 1996 through to 2008, 12 years on television. It was an extraordinary period in our lives, both myself and Angie. But before we get to Big Cat Diary, let's just look back at what it took to become a presenter. Because I didn't go looking for television. I didn't go looking to be famous through the work that I was doing. When I was doing The Leopard's Tale, The Marshlands, I was simply reveling in the opportunity to realize my dream. That dream as a kid growing up in England of doing something with wildlife, particularly wildlife in Africa, Savannah, Africa, big cats, the iconic species. I'm sorry to say, but yes, badgers, foxes, those wonderful Animals, birds, plants, everything that you have in, say, the UK, in America, bears. But it's not the same as Africa. And that was my dream. And it was a dream I was so fortunate to realize. And of course, in meeting Angie and sharing my life with such an extraordinary person. And some of you have said, ah, thank goodness, at last, Angie, when's that guy going to stop talking? Where's the off switch? As people would say, well... Angie always loves to say to people, being shy and retiring by nature, she likes to listen and she's a wonderful listener, a wonderful friend. And she basically is very happy to sit back and listen to what other people have to say. And then let's face it, do you ever learn unless you listen? So it's been a wonderful compliment for us to be able to sort of share an existence where I do the talking and she takes great photographs and when we share the love of what we do. But she will, and I'm going to interview Angie in one of the podcasts, not now, not in this series, but sometime in the future. So as you can hear, not only what a wonderful voice she has, but also what she thinks about life, what her passions are, what she loves and what she doesn't. So I didn't go looking to be a television presenter, but I was a safari guide. I was living in the Maasai Mara, this extraordinary place, part of the Mara Serengeti ecosystem to the south, the great Serengeti National Park, which was Angie's favorite safari destination growing up as she did from the year, the age of four. Uh, and through till her late teens in Tanzania, where her father was in the cotton business. And so becoming a presenter really came about because I was the right person in the right place. I knew what I was talking about when it came to big cats and African wildlife. I had my zoology background. I had firsthand experience of watching animals in the wild. And so when filmmakers came and were looking for somebody to guide them around, then I was an obvious choice. And then at some point, as we said earlier, during the Wild Kingdom days, early 1980s, the television program Mutual of Ours, Omaha's Wild Kingdom, who were coming and photographing wildlife in Africa, saw me. I helped them with finding some of the animals they wanted to photograph. And then they and other people started to say, you know what, you can talk, you know what you're talking about, you don't look so bad. Um, you know, you've got a bit of enthusiasm. And that's what it takes to deliver narration or commentary on what people are looking at on television. And so 
1995, I got the chance. So we did, I'm going to jump back a minute again. So Africa Watch, the first live television broadcast from the Maasai Mara in Kenya of that particular area. And it was quite tricky to do it, but we did and it was successful. And at that time, I was co-presenting with the wonderful Julian Pettifer. And in the team from the BBC were Keith Scholey and Alistair Fothergill, who now have a company called Silverback Productions, produce a lot of the wonderful David Attenborough series, still produce work for the BBC, who they were formerly working with, both who were at different times, first Alistair, then Keith, head of the BBC Natural History Unit, the famous place in Bristol, which creates so much content and uh, for these extraordinary television shows that you enjoy. Um, and so they were part of the production crew for Africa Watch. And after it was successful and I didn't make a fool of myself, they said, and Julian said, we need to find a show for you to present for yourself, for you to anchor. And so it took a long time because there weren't many opportunities. There was the great David Attenborough, obviously dominating a lot of the output of wildlife programs from the BBC. There were independent people like Julian Pettifer's Nature Watch. I featured in that. and uh, But they had their eye on me. And at some point they said, we're going to find something which will be just right for you to present. Well, that was 1989. And finally, I got a chance to do some presenting in 1995 on another live program called Flamingo Watch. And it was during that time that I hooked up with friends in the business, Simon King and Chris Packham, names that you will know very, very well, who have gone on to produce extremely powerful work, whether it's filmmaking in the part of Simon and also presenting television programs. And then, of course, Chris Packham, a total one-off, a wonderful man who's gone on to reach extraordinary heights in his career and very well deserved too. So we were the three presenters of Flamingo Watch. So this was another outside broadcast, a live production, tricky. Are things going to happen on the day? And we were going to film flamingos in the Soda Lakes in the Rift Valley in Kenya. So that meant we were going to be at Lake Nakuru where the flamingos, famous as the greatest bird spectacle on earth, as the phrase coined by Roger Torrey Peterson, the great uh, American ornithologist, Lake Nakuru, and then Lake Bogoria up further north, which is a great place for flamingos and where they at times breed. They also breed, in fact, one of their main areas for breeding is in Lake Natron to the south in Tanzania where Angie grew up, and then Lake Elementita. So we were stationed at these different lakes. Chris was up at Lake Bogoria, I was at Lake Nakuru, and Simon was going backwards and forwards between the two. So suddenly here was the chance to do more live television, which I loved. I don't know what it is. I sometimes think it was because I must be a bit bipolar, but it's apparently I'm not, but I'm certainly a bit manic at times. But I can find that under pressure for live television, I can pretty much think on my feet. I can get the words and get them out in the right order and pretty much be coherent and make sense of it in a way that other people might find difficult. So we produced Flamingo Watch. The only trouble with flamingos is it was a bit one pace, to be honest. Um, you know, yes, there was the occasional uh, drama when fish eagles took baby flamingos or marabous, you know, were predating on the flamingos or their chicks. And um, but it relied a lot on uh, 
video implant. So in other words, during the 10 days we were filming and for a time before we actually went live, we had camera crews who were filming what was happening in the daytime outside of when we were broadcasting live. And those bits of video were inserted into the programs. We'll tell the audience, okay, earlier today or last night or whenever it might have been, this is what happened earlier. And there was some great stuff with lions doing things and, you know, warthogs messing around and all kinds of stuff. But it definitely wasn't the same as Africa Watch. And Africa Watch, you know, it, it had the marsh lions, it had the Musiara marsh, it had other big cats. And we'll see later why Big Cat Diary was so successful, because one thing it wasn't for sure was one paste. So I performed on Flamingo Watch. It was at times pretty, <laughs> pretty hair raising because when you go live, you never know what's happening. I can remember at one point being told to drive the Land Rover with a camera which was situated on the bonnet facing back to me so the camera would film me as I drove. And then at some point I was told forget that, don't talk to the camera on the front of the um, Land Rover as you drive, turn to your left, you'll see a cameraman, and as you go past, throw out your uh, few sentences saying, you know, welcome to Lake Nakuru, this is amazing, I'm Jonathan Scott, and boom, anyway, off we go, I get the cue, right Jonathan, off you go. So I go, and I turn to my right to where the cameraman's positioned, and I can look, see a look of horror on the cameraman's face because the last thing he was expecting at that point was me to be turning to him and speaking. He was there just to get the travel shot as I drove past. I theoretically should have been talking to the front camera but I've been told at the last minute not to. So what do we get? We get Jonathan not looking into camera, looking off to his right, speaking away from camera and the audience thinking what on earth is this bloke doing? So I could hear in my earphone, earpiece, the person who was in charge of choosing which shots were going out, shouting, for God's sake, it's, you know, wrong camera, he's, on, he's looking at the right, you know. Anyway, it was a bit of a cock up, but people had a bit of a laugh. I didn't crash the car. But there was another instance too when Chris was uh, doing some filming up in Bogoria. And at some point I didn't realize while I was waiting to come back in and talk over some footage of uh, this video bits that they'd got earlier. And I see on my uh, screen, on my monitor, I see Chris just half his body and, uh, you know, bits and pieces hanging out, wires and all God knows what. I'm thinking, oh my God, what's happened? not realizing that actually when at times the picture I was seeing on my monitor wasn't the one that was being broadcast. So enough just to give you rack nerves to get you, you know, really on your toes. But I can tell you what does is when in your earphone, somebody comes on and says, we've got a technical problem. You remember the bit we rehearsed earlier with the warthogs in a mud wallow? Well, you're not going to see any footage, but just imagine you're looking at that and talk us through it as if it's live and you're, you know, you're narrating live. Tricky, but great practice. Now, during this period, and because they were looking, as in the Natural History Unit, they were looking for people who would be there, you know, to be the next David Attenborough. Well, I can promise you, if you want you, that the worst thing in your career would be for anybody to think that you might come even close to being able to deliver a performance like the great David Attenborough. He's like Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan. He's a one-off. He is what he is because he's special. 
don't try and burden anybody else with that idea because they have done it. The press are loving the idea that they might discover the next Attenborough. And they've tried it at different times, whether it was Simon King, whether it was Charlotte Ullenbrook, we'll talk about her a little bit later, the chimp lady. And dare I say it at one point, you know, you got the feeling that the producers and people were saying, because when I was talking about doing a show of my own, I got comments from the producers and people saying, look, you know, we need loyalty from you. This could be big, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you knew the way they were doing it, especially when they said, look, I tell you what, Johnny, David Attenborough is doing a new series on the life of plants. Why don't you come? So this was me with my chum, Keith Scully, who I'd met years before when he was just barely out of university and who was now head of the natural history unit. Come and see how David does it because it's an art form and, and just see how natural he is and the way he just does his thing. So I went along and, you know, I had met David before. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and, and it was a wonderful thing to do. But the idea of, you know, be like David Attenborough or speak like David Attenborough or present your lines. If I have anything to say to young people coming up in the industry today, the most important thing is to be yourself. As one person said, Judy Garland, far better to be a 100% version of yourself than a 50%, a half-rate version of somebody else. Be yourself. It's good enough. Don't try and be the next David Attenborough, because you can't be. Be yourself. Deliver, like Chris Packham does, or like the wonderful Megan McCubbin does. You know, being themselves, not trying to be anybody else, not trying to follow somebody else's footsteps, following your own path. Now, talking of David Attenborough, well, a wonderful, wonderful man, somebody who I can say is a friend and who in the late 80s, when I was doing a book or hoping to do a book on wild dogs, painted wolves, I went to see him. And uh, we talked. He loves artwork. And I do pen and ink drawings like Angie does. And I showed him my pen and ink drawings I was doing for Painted Wolves. And he loved them. And we discussed that. And then I said to him, you know, David, I've got a bit of a problem here because I love the idea of Painted Wolves. I think I might have mentioned this before as a title for the book, but the publishers don't want it. He Again, he didn't want to have any of it. He said, look, stick to your guns. It's your book. Painted Wolves, it must be. So it was, but they added in Wild Dogs of the Mara Serengeti. But the reason I mentioned David Attenborough at this point is just to show you what an extraordinary man he was. I get invited for dinner. His wife was still alive. There was another couple who was a famous balloon pilot. We had a wonderful dinner and we all forgot about the time. We had a little bit to drink. We had wonderful salmon cooked in, oh, what was it? It was some wonderful spice that his wife uh, put together. And suddenly I look at my watch and I think, I don't believe it. I've missed the last train back to my mum's house in Newbury. So I said, David, I can't believe it. I've missed the last Oh boy, don't you worry. I'll go to the spare room. He said, it is full of all my kit. There's camera stuff, there's boxes, there's suitcases, but there's a bed in there and it'll do you just fine. So I go to bed feeling very sheepish and very embarrassed. And I think to myself, this is on one occasion, I'm going to be up at Sparrow's Heart and I'm going to be out of this room and be absolutely squeaky clean and no more trouble to anybody. Some hope. David Attenborough used to going out like me on early morning game drives, six o'clock, knock, knock, cup of tea in hand. Oh boy, just to get you off on your way. He said, I've packed some sandwiches and that'll see you home. What a gentleman. I mean, seriously. What a great, great person. No wonder 
He's the person we would trust above all others across the globe to lead us through difficult times. And we certainly need somebody like that now. So then after Flamingo Watch, finally I get the message. Jonathan, we've got a TV show for you. We're calling it Dawn to Dusk. It's going to be six African adventures. And you are going to team up with an expert in their field in different locations in Africa. And you're going to have an adventure. We're going to film it. You're going to be the host. And uh, let's see how it goes. So Wild Dogs in Mombo. That was with Richard Goss, the, the, the wildlife cameraman. Elephant Back Safari with Randall Moore in Okavango Delta, in the Okavango in Botswana. Gombe Stream, the home of Jane Goodall's chimp project, with the wonderful Charlotte Ullenbrook. Wonderful, wonderful lady, PhD student who was studying chimps at that time. She came back to hold my hand. Rhinos with Blythe and Rudy Luti, famous people who decided, who um, created the, the Save the Rhino Fund in Namibia. And then Zambia, the Zambezi, canoeing with the legendary John Stevens. My God, I mean, you know, he's like a child. He's like a school kid in the best possible way. He's probably 70, maybe even older than me. And he will run you off your feet. He'll know every bird, every plant, everything that moves there. He's got the charm to get round anybody. And he's a wonderful, strong, tough-minded individual. So he took me canoe sh- um, in a canoe, on a canoe safari, down the Zambezi and whitewater rafting. And then balloon safari with my great chum and mentor and hero, Alan Root of Alan and Joan Root, the wonderful East African wildlife photographer. Alan Root of Root and Leaky Safaris, Mara River Camp, where I got my first uh, start. Just an extraordinary man. And I was going to do a trip with him as well. So I went to each of these places and the idea was I'd hook up with each of those people who would tell me the story of the area and their their expertise and what it was they'd focused on. And I made a big mistake because instead of asking, the, the problem was I knew a lot of what they were doing already. I'd read the books. I'd read the science. I was keen. That was my field. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to know everything about wildlife. So there I go to interview people and ask them questions when I already knew the answers in most cases. And instead of being rhetorical and saying, you know, Giraffe, you know, they're they're 19 feet, aren't they? So in other words, showing that you know, but just checking and whatever it is, you know, I just would ask questions and the audience would think, what, you know, I'm imagining, what's this guy doing? Well, on one particular trip, the balloon safari with Alan Root. Now, Alan is famous when he used to make his films. He would often have animals that he had habituated or animals that he could add into his film. Everybody knew it. And... So he brought along on Balloon Safari, which we did in the Serengeti with the wonderful Mark Diebel and Victoria Stone, who were protégés of Alan and proved to be absolutely up to the task. Wonderful camera people and film producers themselves now. And uh, they came down to film the series with Alan. And we were going to go down and do a balloon. And Alan had created balloon safaris in the Mara um, after using them because he saw them as a great aid to his photography and his filmmaking. Anyway, Alan brought with him a huge puff adder, which he had in a sack, and a huge monitor lizard, which he had in another container. And occasionally we would get into his plane because he was a crazy, wild, amazing pilot and helicopter pilot. More crashes than you can imagine. You know, a cat with nine lives, forget it. This guy had 20. 
And uh, so our producer, the wonderful Sarah Ford, who was also a producer on Big Cat Diary, would, would have kittens. She'd get in the plane, forget that the thing next to her, which looked like a coat, was a sack with a puff adder in it until it hissed and, you know, made a big fuss about it anyway. I remember we, we went up to the Goal Mountains and we had to do some sort of, you know, I don't know what you call it, roping down over the edge. And, and she was just so you know, concerned because in these days of health and safety, people like Alan Root who know, who, who just, you know, they want to take risks. They'd like to think it's acceptable risks. And, uh, you know, so we were having this thing. So one of the times we were with Alan, uh, I'm in it with him in the plane. It's beginning to rain. He's landed on the planes, on the open plains of the Serengeti. No airstrip, just there. We start to take off and he's, we're, we're trying to get up off the ground. We get up a little bit and Alan starts saying, shit, shit, shit. And uh, then he finally manages to pull the plane up without pranging it and dropping it nose down. And, and then he looks to me and says, uh, everything OK, Johnny? You, you, you're not nervous, are you? I said, Alan, if I'm flying with you, how could I be? Well, funnily enough, bang, we land. We burst the back white wheel or rather we burst the back tire. So again, Alan thinking on his feet, he just straps up. He, what he does is he gets a shovel. He re reverses the shovel so as the flat back wheel, so it's a wheel drag of the plane, two wheels either side at the front, this little wheel at the back. He sticks the flat back wheel under the shovel or so as it's sitting on the spade end of the shovel, ties up the wooden handle up braced against the prop which leads to the, not prop as in propeller, but the, the strut which the back wheel is attached to and off we go. Angie looking and thinking, bloody hell, you know, what what's this all about? And I can remember when we were filming, you know, we get up there with Alan, uh, he has got one of his fingers missing, his index finger, can't remember if it's his left or his right hand, but just one of many incidents he's had with wild creatures. He was milking a puff adder, uh, it got its fang into his... Um, into his finger and he nearly lost his arm anyway they removed his finger but it saved his filming hand and at some point I look see this missing finger and I say Alan has it affected your flying at all uh, which stupid silly Johnny not a great very smart question to to post to Alan Root and he immediately puts the the plane into a nosedive the cameraman in the back nearly fell out of the open side over the open door and Alan was laughing his head off and he said he was saying I was saying you know not many wildebeest around are there and he said no he said it's like they've all disappeared down Warthog boroughs. Anyway, we had a great time. But when we were doing the filming, it was pretty tricky to say anything that could add to what Alan already knew and wouldn't seem gratuitous. And then when the film came out, there would be bits where I would say, look, there's a cheetah, where the audience were already seeing, there's a cheetah. And boy, oh boy. <laughs> Christine Adona, Adoni. Christine O'Doni, O-D-O-N-E, writing a review in the Daily Telegraph. She's a very smart lady. And I'm going to read you what she said. So, then she went on. I wouldn't follow a guide like this to the corner shop. But, but perhaps under the African sun, banality becomes contagious because he, Alan Root, too started issuing some pretty inane lines. It's a great time to be a lion, as the wildebeest migration began. Yep, it is a great time to be a lion, Jonathan Scott agreed. After some more of this, I found myself wishing Scott would become the snap, crackle and pop on the lion's breakfast menu. And she'd entitled her review, Hush, it's the sound of an eager beaver. 
She accused me of imparting irrelevant information from his passenger seat in an aeroplane, a hot air balloon, even from his perch upon a rock, and of not letting the awe-inspiring scenery and the majesty of the animals speak for themselves. You know, as much as it was hard to read that, I couldn't help feeling that in some ways she'd caught me out. Because there is an eager beaver about me, I've always had in great enthusiasm and energy and sometimes chattering and talking too much. And the bottom line is this, on television, you need to add commentary, which adds information. Sorry about that little tweet. I thought I'd put my phone somewhere else. Um, she would, uh, you know, you need to add information to what you're seeing. You don't say, look at that crocodile. When it's very plain to the audience, yes, look at that crocodile. So some of what she said was true. I mean, I think she probably had an agenda in as much as it's always good, isn't it, to, you know, if people are saying, oh, that was pretty nice to say, you know what, the guy's a divot. So it's always good to look at constructive criticism. And I took that on board and I didn't forget it. And, you know, who knows, could it have ended my presenting career? Fortunately, after those episodes for Dawn to Dusk, Big Cat Diary was announced. Now, just before we get there, I want to tell you one thing. When I was with Charlotte Ullenbrook at Gombe Stream, and I tell you, chimps, following chimps, it is hard work, especially at Gombe. It's very steep terrain, so you're up and down. I'd been given special sort of hockey boots with studs on, so as when it was slippery and rainy, which it was, you could clamber up those muddy hills and, and keep up with the chimps. And they move at great pace, particularly when they're moving from one fruiting tree to another. Now, our producer for that particular program was the wonderful Robin Hollier. Robin Hellier. Sorry, Robin. Robin Hellier. And he was also one of our producers on Big Cat Diary moving forward. Anyway, we went and we were working with the F family. And the families at Gombe Stream are named after a particular letter of the alphabet. And you've probably heard of Fifi, the famous female gorilla. I mean, <laughs> gorilla, famous female. <laughs> she won't be proud of that. Famous female chimp. Uh, the family that Jane Goodall put so much time into studying. Anyway, within that family at the time we visited, which was 2005-2006, the alpha male was called Freud and his brother was Frodo, who basically looked like a gorilla but was a chimp. And I think almost felt like he had the power of a gorilla, but a little bit more on him in a minute. I remember as we came up, for the first view of the chimps and it was going to be Freud and I came up through the clambering through the the the, um, the creepers which were tugging at your heels and your feet and which you thought you could break through and you couldn't and you're tripping and falling and I'm absolutely drenched and Charlotte I mean forget it about ladies not even perspiring she just looked as clean as a whistle <laughs> I looked as if I'd just fallen into Lake Tanganyika. So now here is Freud, and guess what? He's got his back up against a tree, he's got his legs crossed, and he's got these brown, hazel brown eyes, and he looks at me and I look at him, and I just had that instant revelation of a connection, the primate in us and in him. And, you know, I'd never, when I came to Africa, I really wasn't interested in primates. There's a lot of people who love primatology. Well, the baboons didn't particularly interest me. And now the chimps, I was thinking, well, how much am I really? I tell you, it's different when you actually see them in the wild. So then that was Freud. 
alpha male, quiet, a peacemaker, and then Frodo, who would become the alpha male, who was a bully, and who had given Jane Goodall a hard time, thumped her in the back. And fortunately, when you get chimps and they can be aggressive, they go into two categories. They can be biters. You don't want that, I tell you. And they can be thumpers, which means they literally just thump you with their hands. And that's what Frodo did to Jane and really gave her a very nasty twisted neck as far as I can remember. So at least he wasn't a biter, not at that point anyway. And when I say biters and damage from chimps, I had a friend, Annie Oliver Croner, who I worked with at Myra River Camp, Swedish lady, lovely, great with primates, had a lifetime's experience with them. And she worked in the uh, zoo in, I think it was in Sweden, and uh, so maybe Stockholm, and where her friend was mauled and bitten. His hands were bitten as he tried to defend himself against a chimp. And I think he actually lost his hands, or certainly one of his hands. So no Frodo. Well, I had two memorable moments during the filming with these chimps. One was we were told, don't lose sight of your rucksack. Now, I was carrying a heavy rucksack, like I told you. I was drenched to the, uh, you know, right, my shirt was, as I say, looked like I'd fallen in Lake Tanganyika. My backpack was absolutely drenched and wet with sweat, so very salty. And at some point, we're gathered, I'm sitting there with um, Charlotte, and we're talking about the interactions between the chimps and Frodo's there. And at some point, I lose track. I get so absorbed with what's going on. I lose track, get up, and I leave my rucksack. Next minute, one of the uh, rangers, one of the guys says, Johnny, Johnny, your, your rucksack. And he points, and I look up, and there it is, up in the tree, with a bunch of trimps going bonkers around it, licking at the straps and the back of the rucksack because of the salt, the sweat. And guess who's in the middle? Who's now got the rucksack? Frodo. And at some point, and I've got my Canon camera body, don't know what it was, EOS 1 or something like that. And I've got a 300 2.8, costs about three grand, whether it's euros, dollars, pounds, beautiful lens, 2.8, prized possession, and they're in the rucksack. And Frodo decides when he's had enough of it to let it go. 20 feet, bang. Fortunately, Canon make great products, and it was it didn't do any damage. So there was that. But then there was another occasion. We're standing on a path. We're filming. Robin Helly is just to the side of me, out of the shot. And I'm looking up the path because I can hear a right old Kaleli going on because the males are going into one of their aggressive displays where their hair stands on end and they thump their chests. Well, no, that's a gorilla. But they make a, a big fuss and they run around and they shriek and they scream and they show off. And, and it's all about, you know, the hierarchy and dominance amongst the males. And down the path, I see one chimp and he's bristling and he's whooping, whooping, hooting. And he's coming down like an express train. And I turn to the camera and I say, now here comes a chimp coming down and he's looking really, really like he's fired up. Watch out. And I then say, now I'm not sure which chimp this is, at which point the chimp grabs Robin by the ankle and literally, and the power of these creatures, yanks Robin down off his feet by the ankle and drags him down the path. At which point I say, you know what? I think I know who that is. That's Frodo. Anyway, he got fed up with molesting Robin and let him go. But Robin was shaken. We were shaken. You don't want somebody to get bitten in these instances. But dawn to dusk, 
a fantastic opportunity to travel around Africa, a huge learning experience about becoming comfortable with the camera, about not talking to the picture, obvious information that the audience could put two and two together. Give added value in what you say or don't say anything at all. So then, fantastic news. 1996, Big Cat Diary is commissioned. The idea for Big Cat Diary was Keith Scully's, my chum, head of the Natural History Unit. And it came about because we were moving into a time where actuality, where reality shows were beginning to become hugely popular. Not scripted, not all nice and neat, not news reading, not standing there with a board off camera, reading what you've got to say to people, but actually in the moment. And Keith said to me, you know, there's an interesting show in the UK. I think it was produced by Rolf Harris and we won't go there. But it was called Animal Hospital, and it was based around people's domestic animals which were struggling, which had to come to the vet. So you had people, you had loved animal characters, you had emotion, and you had everything would capture the audience's attention. And Keith said to himself, having been there when we did Africa Watch, he said, you know what, we could do this with big cats in the Maasai Mara. And 1996 was a pivotal year because what we realized and why Flamingo Watch wasn't a great success was because it was one paced. There weren't enough characters. But in the Mara, with Africa's three big cats, lions, leopards and cheetahs, you had three strong characters. So you could go from one story to the other. If the lions were doing something, stick with them. If I was with the leopard, and the leopard was doing something, you come to me. If Simon was with a cheetah and it was about to hunt, boom, there you go. So we realized that actually we could create something which you could say was akin to a soap opera. And one of the things that I think we, that made it, well, in fact, not one of the things, I knew from my work in the Mara that the hardest big cat of all, the one which initially, as I say, took me six years to write my book, The Leopard's Tale, The Leopard, difficult, secretive, wants to remain invisible, shy, makes a living by keeping out of sight, wants to avoid competition from lioness and hyenas, so hides. The camouflage nature of its coat allows it to do that, wants to stay unseen by prey animals, which will blast an alarm call, then again keep your head down. So, it meant that you had to have a leopard that you could work with. And up until, you know, the early 90s, we didn't really have that. And then, as I say, in the 80s and late 70s, 80s, I had worked with Chewy, the leopard I wrote about, and her mother, the Mara Buffalo female, for The Leopard's Tale. But it would have been tough to have made television around it, um, certainly prior to that time. And then after that, we had a, a sort of, a fallow period where we really didn't have great leopard characters that we could work with, not for a while. And then I found, I won't say I found, but I found out about a female, a young female who had moved from Paradise Plain to the south of Governor's Camp. As she dispersed, wasn't room for her to be able to stay where her mother, where she'd been born and overlap her territory with her mother. So she gradually moved from Paradise Plain up past Musiara Marsh and came up to Leopard Gorge Fig Tree Ridge, this glorious area where I had focused my attentions with Chewy and the Mara Buffalo female in writing The Leopard's Tale. 
So this female, I called the paradise female because that's where she originated from. And by 1996, she was already breeding and had had cubs in the past. And in this instance, she had a young female, I think she was about seven months old, whose name was Zawadi, which means gift and what a gift Halftail and Zawadi were. Now, for some reason, the BBC at that point weren't that crazy about necessarily using Swahili names. Will people understand who you're talking about? Yes, they would. But the BBC had a very clear mandate. No, we want to, what do they call her? Shadow. Oh my God, we had a black Labrador, beloved, shadow. And so you can imagine for me when I'm presenting Big Cat Diary and Zawadi, a.k.a. Shadow, is coming down a tree. I, you know, it was hard to concentrate. Here comes Shadow. Oh, I think she's after that Impala. No, no, she's seen a gazelle. And I'm thinking Labrador. Anyway, her name's Zawadi and an extraordinary character. So we had in 1996, and the proof was in the pudding, pudding because we actually found Halftail and Zawadi, every, I think, 45 days in a row. She never, we could always find her because we knew where to look for her. We knew her habits. We knew the places that she loved to rest up rest up in caves along Fig Tree Ridge, Leopard Gorge, in special trees that she favoured in other parts of her territory. And we had people like Moses uh, Maduku, Manduku, uh, still at Governor's Camp. We even named Moses Rock after him up into the north. We'll talk about that later. So we had a lot of people who were our spotters, our guides, along with Angie, who were able to actually locate the big cats that we wanted to follow. So series one, Halftail, and this seven-month-old cub, Zawadi, were stars of the show. And of course, for television, in terms of people being able to identify the animal characters we're talking about, what could be better than a leopard with half a tail? Do we know how she lost it? Well, I've seen her in plenty of interactions. You'd be surprised with troops of baboon, where she is chased and has to take refuge in a cave, occasionally up a tree, and the baboons would go up there with her. And then she'd come bounding down through them, making life, you know, difficult for them, but them difficult for her. And the big males would have no compunction by grabbing her tail, biting her, and then collectively mobbing her. I mean, it just mayhem. And of course, from the baboon's point of view, they don't want to get eaten. So harass her, mob her, move her on. That's the idea. Let her know. We've seen you. It's going to be more comfortable if you're not going to be where we are. So how did she lose the tail? Could have been in a fight with another leopard. If it was with a lion, what a lucky leopard she would have been. As I say, maybe with another leopard, maybe baboons. But whatever it was, we found her at one point. The paradise female with her, hat, her tail, halfway along the tail, broken the vertebrae broken and just hanging, dragging, and eventually it just came off or she would have chewed through it, who knows. And so she became half-tail. So for television, half-tail, this leopard, you couldn't fail to identify her. And then with a cub. Now, one of the things we've always known with Big Cat Diary was find characters that have young. Because if there's anything that drives the story, not only are the cubs cute, and pretty, and people love them and get engaged with the trials and tribulations of whether they will survive or not. But the mothers do so much more. A leopard without a cub, I promise you, probably up in a tree or in a cave, hiding, even if you find it going to do absolutely nothing. I've waited with Angie all day, 
Six in the morning, found a leopard. Maybe up a tree. Six in the evening, maybe she comes down. Yawns. You're thinking, please, God, there's a little bit of light. Can I just have a little bit of something to photograph? No. Leopards are primarily nocturnal. It's best for them. Their eyes, the acuity of their vision, six times that of a human. When we've filmed at night, which we did on occasion during Big Cat Diary, and gone out and filmed, as we did, half-tail, or lions, you couldn't believe how close they got to prey animals, impalas, gazelles lying down, wildebeest, so much closer than they would have been able to get in the daytime. So the night favours the predator. And so Big Cat Diary, in some ways, you know, Big Cat Diary going out. So the, the form was this. Initially, 1996, Simon and myself in our vehicles, driving around, telling you stories about lions, leopards and cheetahs. Would have been the marshlands and generally was the marshlands in the series. But in the first year, there was a lot of disruption to the pride. The males had been chased away. Some other males were trying to come in. The females weren't doing much in the daytime. It was a bit disrupted. There weren't a lot of young cubs. And so we didn't actually film with them. We filmed with a wonderful pride to the north called uh, the Big Pride or the Acacia Pride. So lions, cheetah. Simon worked with the cheetah. He'd done a lot of filming with cheetahs. And uh, and then we had Halftail and Zawadi. So we had our three characters. And Simon and I split lions. And then I did leopards. He did cheetahs. And we had a camera crew, which basically filmed the bits that we did to camera. And so we would have very structured, very curated. We would have a, a director just doing the pieces to camera. And the camera car with the cameraman and the director would come alongside my car or Simon's car. I'd lean out of the window, talk to the camera, say what I was meant to say and get frustrated as hell. Because what I loved was live television actuality. And I'd be thinking, you know what, there's a fantastic shot right now with Halftail and Zawadi or Zawadi mucking around in a bush. Stick that in front of me. Let me talk about what's going on and deliver whatever it is you want me to say to give structure to the top, tail and middle of the show. No, Johnny, we know what we're doing, which of course they did. Just keep quiet, let us do our job. Frustrating. So Simon, you know, an amazing television presenter. I've got huge respect for Simon. I mean, he grew up with his dad, John King, who was a producer with the BBC. They pro produced and presented their own animal character series at Christmas. They would always do a, a, a show featuring a particular animal. Again, it was buying into what we now know that people absolutely love, which is people talking about things they know about with passion and emotion in the moment and who understand and know what they're talking about so they can deliver information to you and seem like they that it's what they are loving to do in which they would rather do this than anything else which was the truth and so in some ways what we were doing on big cat diary was what angie and i did when the bbc went home after you know eight weeks ten weeks whatever it might be initially those kind of lengths to do our six programs um they would go home and Angie and I would continue following the lions, leopards and cheetahs, living at first Mara River Camp, then Kitchwatemba, then Governor's Camp and going out every day and following our passion, writing our books, drawing, photographing the animals and keeping a log of their stories like other people eventually were doing too. And so Big Cat Diary mirrored that.
And I think it was having people like myself and drivers and guides at Governor's Camp, people like Simon who knew about big cats and had filmed them, having that kind of input gave it authenticity. And initially, it went out on BBC One. So a fantastic slot. I can't remember if it was six o'clock or seven o'clock or just before, you know, leading into the soap operas, Emmerdale or Coronation Street or uh, EastEnders, whatever it might be. And so we had a captive audience. Only trouble was Series One, BBC One, co-production, BBC, Discovery Channel. We went out on the night that, let's say, Manchester United were playing Juventus in the European Cup. No contest. But people saw the potential and it caught on. Here suddenly were these extraordinary creatures. I mean, can you get anything better or more exciting or beautiful or dramatic than Africa's big cats and to follow their stories and reveal the individual characters? And that's what Angie and I were able to do and could pass on to the team and which the driver guides could also pass on their uh, ideas of the stories and the characters that we were following. Because we had got to know these big cats as individuals. Now, with lions, every lion has a different whisker spot pattern. So it's not just one's got half a tail or it's got an eye missing. In time, you might get another lion with half a tail or an eye missing, and you could get confused if you hadn't seen them for a few years. But that whisker spot pattern on their muzzle is unique. It's a fingerprint unique to each individual. And scientists, Judith Rudnay and... Uh, uh, a gentleman studying vultures, uh, and she was studying lions in Nairobi National Park. Uh, his name was Pennyquick, who was actually the tutor of uh, Keith Scully at University in Bristol. So they had discovered in Nairobi National Park, Judith Rudnight, this fact that each lion had a different whisker spot pattern. And of course, now scientists keep a log, they keep a record of each lion they see. And they encourage people, visitors, guides to send in photographs of lions or leopards or cheetahs they haven't seen or have seen. So as they can document the individual characters when it comes to leopards, different spot pattern for each leopard. When it comes to cheetahs, different spot pattern, different tail markings. I mean, look at a picture, for instance, of Zawadi. If you look at her right eye underneath the white patch underneath her, her eye, there's a row of five identical spots. Anytime I see a picture, I just look for that. And it, you could look for any cluster of spots and it will be different for each animal. So individuals, we could let you into the story of individual lives with enthusiasm, with knowledge. And so, you know, in, in the end, these big cats became famous and known to millions of viewers. They became celebrities. As you'll see, if you watch the 95 or 90 minute documentary, BBC, PBS documentary, 2002, Pamela Gordon, producer, Lion. The Rise and Fall of the Marsh Pride, which documents from the time I started watching them in 1977 all the way through to the poisoning of the lions in 2015. So, Big Cat Diary, an extraordinary time in our life. Now, that was 1996. Now, in 1997, Angie and I got a wonderful opportunity. We were asked to produce segments or to appear in segments of a new television series produced by Bertram von Munster, who created the cops show where camera crews went in with the cops on drug busts or, you know, on their work. Again, actuality television, reality television. And um, 
he created a series called Wild Things for Paramount Television. And they were sort of six to eight minute segments on people such as ourselves, photographers or vets or researchers working with wildlife. And we were from 1997 to 1999 able to go around the world, India, tigers, Nepal, rhinos, Alaska, bears, Kenya, cheetahs, Tanzania, lions in Ngorongoro Crater, Komodo Islands, the Komodo dragon, Kalimantan, Borneo, Kusasi, so Bariti Galdigas, who studied, she was the third of the primate, the trimate ladies that Louis Leakey, the famous paleontologist, the anthropologist who with his wife Mary created and discovered those footprints and so many fossils with their son Richard Leakey documenting the journey through time of mankind, us from primate to human. Olduvai Gorge, Tanzania, East Africa, a hotspot of hominid development. And so we went, uh, so there were the three ladies that Richard, that uh, Louis Leakey ascribed or assigned to study primates because he felt women were more connected, were more empathetic, were less likely just to see male dominance in everything that they saw in primate behavior. So Jane Goodall Chimps, the wonderful Diane Fossey with gorillas, and then Baruti Galdikas with the orangutans in Borneo. So on that Wild Things program, we went around the world. I went at one point to Camp Leakey, met up with Baruti, and met an extraordinary character who was a huge, wild-born, ex-captive male orangutan called Kusasi. And what a lesson there was there in terms of don't get carried away in getting the shot. Don't risk the animal character. Don't risk your lives or yourself simply because you see a great shot and try to get it, even against good advice and good judgment. So we're filming at Camp Leakey and this huge male now, ex-captive and released back into the wild, this huge male would occasionally come into camp and he'd get food and stuff, but he was basically living in the wild now and he was massive. And there was a camera crew there at the time with a Spanish presenter and a guy that we knew from Kenya who was an advisor. And um, everybody was told, if you see Kusasi coming down the path, keep to one side of him. Don't let him get hold of you. And remember, he can get hold of you with his hand or his foot, just like a hand. And this presenter thinks, here's my moment. Here's this amazing two-shot, me and Kusasi, me telling the audience, look at this. This is this extraordinary orangutan who was born in the wild, raised as a captive and released back into the wild. Guess what? He gets too close. Kusasi gets him by the ankle. Then he pulls his head towards him by his hand and he starts mouthing his head. Now the presenter, far from thinking this is the most best, wonderful opportunity ever, is almost in tears beside himself. The helper, the guy that we knew, was basically saying, you know, mate, you've brought this on yourself. Anyway, apparently these kind of situations, be given his background, Kusasi's, when he was a captive, the only way people could control him eventually before they just let him go was by showing him fire. He was terrified. So the rangers used to carry a cigarette lighter. And if Kusasi, in a situation like this, they could just flick the cigarette lighter and he would just take off, terrified. Well, the person with them didn't have the cigarette lighter. 
It was a mess. It was horrible. But what a lesson. Nobody was hurt in the end. They were very shaken up, mortified. But let's get straight about this. We're privileged to be able to spend time with wild creatures, with these amazing iconic animals and everything from lions, leopards, cheetahs, elephants, right down to the tiny stuff, the termites. It's a privilege to be in nature. Let's be respectful. Let's not just see it as entertainment. Let's just not face with our backs to the subject to get those selfies and just think that we, we've we done it. We've seen it. No, be reverence. Think of it as a spiritual moment. And so that was extraordinary to do that. And that being there, doing these segments, myself and Angie, traveling to these wonderful places, we had to become so familiar with the camera that we could turn any, you were never, the cameraman was never allowed to put his camera on a tripod. Wobbly cam was just fine. It was meant to be in the moment. The sound man could pick up a camera and start photographing. And the cameraman would photograph the cameraman or the sound man if something interesting was happening to him. So it was full on actuality, no script, but it was so real. And it meant that I became totally confident in talking to the camera, of thinking it is my friend, of chatting just like I am to you, down that lens and not even thinking about it. And so you thought this was going to be about just maybe Big Cat Diary. Well, guess what? The next episode, episode 10, is the final one in our story, even though our story, of course, is going to continue. But we're going to follow this up with another series two of our podcast, 10 episodes, and they are going to be called Big Cat Diary, The Making of a Television Phenomenon. And in that, we're going to look at not just what made it a phenomenon, what made it last for 12 years on television, which made it the thing, the, the incredible experience it was for us and for you, and which has kept people interested in those stories and in our lives all the way through, 25 years later. And so we'll explore the stories of the star big cats along with the people who made it happen. So that, you've got one more program to go in this series. And do remember to check out our website. So you can either check out www.jonathanangelascott.com or www.bigcatpeople.com because we have launched a new series of ebooks. The first one, Wildlife Photography, Basic for Beginners. The second one, the story behind 10 iconic images, showing you the thought process that we went through to get those images. And the latest one, a Photographer's Guide to an African Safari, Mara Serengeti. Now, there's something we really know what we're talking about. So we hope you will look at those. We hope you will buy them. They're inexpensive. They're informative. And we hope you'll keep listening to our podcast. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.